morning, everybody. It's Lisa Salberg, and this is Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. Today, I'm being joined by Dr. Harry Lever of the Cleveland Clinic. And our topic of discussion today is going to be about septal reduction therapy. And in 2022, maybe we should start calling it something a little different like gradient management. We're working on this terminology. Um, But before we get started today, I have a couple of announcements. Number one, um, if you're in the North Jersey area on October 22nd, the HCMA will be holding its first live fundraiser since COVID. And it is called um, Unmasked the Great Masquerader Ball. And you can join us in Parsippany, New Jersey at the beautiful Parsippany Terra. And oops, Harry, I muted you by mistake, so unmute yourself. And you can get tickets at 4hcm.com or.org. Sorry, I said my own website wrong. And you can join us um, there. If you're not in the area and you want to help sponsor the event or you want to provide an auction item, we have an Amazon wish list where you can purchase something and it will go out for auction and that will help the event uh, be more successful. Uh, 50% of the proceeds from this event will go to the Lori Fund. The Lori Fund will be open for applications within the next few days. And these are micro grants that will be provided for travel to an HCMA recognized center of excellence or transplant facility for the care and management of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Um, these micro grants will allow you to get gas money, hotel money, maybe a plane ticket that will make it a little bit more affordable for you to get the high quality care. There will be some restrictions based on income, obviously, um, but the application will be up and running very soon and you'll be able to apply. So we're, we know there is a need, but we need to fund this. And the Great Masquerader Bowl is going to help us provide funding for that um, program. So thank you for that. And we also have a couple of new sponsors that I want to mention this morning. Um, thanks to BioMarin and Imbria for coming on and sponsoring the HCMA this year. And we invite you to learn about their companies. They'll be on our partners page shortly if they're not there already. Um, and always thank you to Cytokinetics, Invitae, BMS, and uh, Boston Scientific for their support of this and other programs of the HCMA. Cool. Had a lot of messages this morning. So, Harry, good yep. morning. Morning. So, let's talk about obstruction. So, first, could you please explain for our listeners what is outflow tract obstruction and what is a gradient? Let's start well, at the beginning. What, what happens is the uh, the out the outflow of the heart tends to be small, and the uh, and the septum is can be thick although in some situations it may not be thick, and we can get into that. And what happens when you get obstruction is the mitral valve has come up and hit the septum with each heartbeat, and that makes a pressure difference across that area that we call a gradient. That means that the, you can put a catheter across that area or do an echo and see that, uh, that there's a pressure difference between un, below the mitral valve and, a, and, a, and above it. So that's what's called a gradient. And what we try to do is, in some way, reduce that gradient because it's the gradient, that pressure difference, which puts pressure back on the mitral valve towards the left atrium and rate can raise the pressure in the heart and, and cause shortness of breath. And, you know, 
particularly uh, you know, into, into the lungs. And in some patients, it can become severe enough that they actually go into congestive heart failure where you see liquid in the lungs. Now, a lot of people don't get that, but, but some do. And that, that, so what we're trying to do is do something to get rid of that gradient. And well, I was going to say, just clarification. So does everybody with HCM have a gradient? No, about 35% have what we call a resting gradient. That means if you're just sitting there, there's pressure difference. There's about another 30 to 35% who have uh, what we call provocable obstruction. That is with exercise, moving around, that then the heart shrinks a little bit as the heart rate goes up and the mitral valve hits the septum. So that's provocable gradient. And then there's another 30% who have no obstruction at all. And we call that a non-obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Are gradients always the same number when you measure them? No, they can change. And uh, uh, if it can go up, for instance, if you get dehydrated, it's a hot day outside, you don't have enough fluid in you, the cavity gets smaller, the mitral valve can move closer, and the heart, our heart in general in the cavity gets smaller, the pressure gradient can go up. So it, it can be variable. And uh, that's, you know, probably the best places for some people is Alaska and the worst places are out in the far West where all this heat's going on. So if you, if you're out in this, you know, out in Arizona or someplace in the summer with 110 degrees, this could be very serious problem. Very true. Very true. Okay. So what do we do about obstruction? I, well, feel like, uh, I feel like I'm in um, The Sound of Music. What do we do with the problem called Berea? What do we do with the problem yeah. called obstruction? Well, we, we try to do what we can to uh, reduce it. And the, the first simple thing is we, um, we you increase the fluids. Then we use medications. And the, um, um, the, the medications that have been used the longest, although there is, believe it or not, the least amount of data, are beta blockers. And I, it, 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 it just, I don't really understand why we haven't published more on beta blockers when they've been used for so long. Um, we, uh, but that's the facts. And, but they do, clinically, they do work. They make people feel better, but they may not always reduce the gradient. They clearly reduce the heart rate. And so if the heart rate's slower, there's more time for the heart to fill. And then the, the pressure can drop. So you, you need to, you know, so beta blockers can be used. There's another, there's another group of drugs called calcium channel blockers. Um, verapamil is one, and then diltiazem is another. And there's more data about verapamil than diltiazem. But in my experience, diltiazem may actually work a little better than verapamil. And lately we've had shortages of verapamil, so it's been hard to get. And that that that's a whole other story. So that that's that we have beta blockers and there are numbers of beta blockers. We got to be careful about that. You know, there are some of these beta block, these companies that make beta blockers don't make very good drugs. We stay away from a manufacturer called Dr. Reddy, for example, which has had all kind of trouble with their manufacturing in India. We don't want to do that. Um, so we got to be careful about that. Then, then there's a third class of uh, a drug called disapyramide, which um, 
decreases the force of contraction of the heart. And in so doing, it can decrease the gradient. It's probably effective in 65% of people. You've got to be careful. It can cause dry mouth, dry eyes, and, and it can cause problems with the prostate gland in older men. So you've got to be careful about that. But I would also work. add to that that disapyramide generic is a short acting and thereby right. require multiple doses throughout the day. But Norpace CR manufactured right. by Pfizer in the United States and distributed by Pfizer um, has a long acting element. They've been in shortage a lot lately, but I've been in recent talks with them and we may be on the path to getting some better. Supply. Yeah, I was going to say, if you can get it, that's that's been a major problem. And so we've got to, uh, you know, that's that. But it does work in some patients and uh, it's worth trying it uh, and, you know, and see how it does. If it if if those drugs don't work, then there's a new one. We have a Campton, which uh, there's a lot of excitement about it now. It seems to decrease the contractility of the heart and lowers the gradient. Uh, the, my concern about it is there isn't enough data yet. We don't have it in huge. No, we have it in some studies, but not huge numbers of patients. And I think we just need time to um, see how it goes. And, and it so, so far, our, our community is getting used to the name Camzios rather than Mavic Hampton. Um, I think they're both equally as complicated to pronounce, right. but uh, same drug, just to clarify to those who are listening that Camzios is Mavicampton. And then there the are- name, That's the name brand. The name, brand. name brand. Name and brand versus drug name. Right, right. And we have another company who's developing Afficampton, which is another form of a myosin inhibitor, which is in right. trial right now. Right. So there are these new options. Um, so we're going to kind of go through what some of the options are, and then we're going to go through some decision-making trees towards the end of this segment as to why you might want to try something over another and just some thought patterns that you might want to consider when having conversations with your chosen care provider. So we've got the pharmaceuticals. We have, we have drug therapy to treat gradient, and we've had some of it for 30, 40, 50 years. Some of it is more probably 20, 30 years, and then the newer ones literally became available this year. Um, so should somebody exhaust every drug option before thinking further, or are there reasons for people to say, I want to anatomically correct this either with a catheter-based procedure or surgery? What do you think? Well, I think that it depends on how the patient's doing. If they're very symptomatic and a short course of, you know, a drug doesn't do much, then I think you should go to surgery. But there's one thing to think about. If you have problems, and this has not been formally talked about in the guidelines, so to say. Yeah, if you have a problem with atrial fibrillation, if you suddenly go into atrial fibrillation, that's a sign that the heart is under a lot of strain. And that has pushed me to, to uh, anatomically correct patients, uh, it, it, you know, right, because we don't want that atrial fibrillation to, to become permanent. We want to do everything we can not to allow the left, at, left and right atrium to enlarge. If they enlarge, 
then we've got a problem where it could become permanent. And then we've got all the problem with strokes and anticoagulation and all that kind of stuff. So I have taken the approach that if you go into atrial fibrillation, that's we've got to start thinking about doing something, getting rid of the gradient. And sometimes we do procedures on the left atrium to prevent, we, we can use a catheter or we operate, do what's called maze procedure on the left atrium to try to get rid of that atrial fibrillation. And the sooner you do that, if you go into atrial fibrillation, the better the chance that you will have more permanent uh, getting rid of the atrial fibrillation. If you wait too long and that left atrium gets large, that's going to be a major problem. So you don't want that to happen. And that, that, that is one thing that is over the years, I've, as I've seen people with atrial fibrillation, I say, you just don't want to have that happen. You want to, that's something we got to get rid of. AFib on top of obstruction makes for a very unhappy patient. Right. And, 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 you know, early on, when we started doing surgery and things of that sort, we didn't have, we didn't know about these things to to get rid of atrial fibrillation. So that we kind of, that grew into how we're managing people. And I think that's why we might do it earlier because, you know, we have it now. Okay. So we've avoided drugs, you know, we've gone through all the drugs. And maybe you've stepped up, maybe you've done some step therapy, which is a word that I'm not really thrilled with, but you've tried your beta blockers, you tried your calcium channel blockers, you tried maybe disapiramide, you try maybe Navicamptin or Kemsios, or you go into a trial and you're still not happy with the way you feel and the gradient's still not resolved enough, or you don't want to be on a medication permanently. There are two tried and true therapies. Alcohol septal ablation is one. And Harry, can you explain what it is and who is the sweetheart candidate for an alcohol septal ablation? Well, al- alcohol septal ablation is where we take a catheter and we, in, they're, they're called the, the branch arteries off the, the left anterior descending artery, or once in a while, even off of a, an artery called the circumflex, but it's mainly the left anterior descending artery. You put a catheter into that little branch you inject some saline and you can see the heart light up in that's the heart that's fed by that branch will light up when you inject it. So you see where it gets, where it lights up. And then you know where, if you get rid of a piece of that muscle, it will hopefully get rid of the gradient. That's where the mitral valve is hitting the septum. Well, um, so how do we get rid of that? that piece of septum, we'd inject a small dose of alcohol, like two cc's of alcohol down that branch. But first, what we do is we we look with saline. It won't damage the heart, and you see exactly where that alcohol will work. Now, problem is, once you inject the alcohol, it's either gonna it's either gonna work or it's not gonna work. And sometimes we see an acute drop in the gradient after we give the alcohol, but it it uh, but it truly takes and can take an, weeks to months till the alcohol really gets its full, yeah. its full effect on that muscle. The other problem that we have to be aware about, and this is very important, is without the alcohol septal ablation in a percentage, a large percentage of people, you will get what we call right bundle branch block. That is the electrical mechanism, the electrical mechanism of the heart has two bundles, one that feeds the left ventricle and one that feeds the right ventricle. 
And if you, when you inject alcohol, you have a high incidence of it causing right bundle branch block. Now, some patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy will have, before you do anything to them, may have left bundle branch block, where the, the bundle to the left side is, is damaged. And, and that's related to scarring. These bundle branch blocks are related to scarring. And um, so if you have to start with a left bundle branch block and you give somebody alcohol, you're going to have a right bundle branch. You're going to have complete heart block. And that means you need a pacemaker. And so we need to know what the patient has before we start. They have a left bundle branch block. You better be prepared to quickly put in a permanent pacemaker. Uh, if they have the right bundle to start with, it's probably not going to make that much difference. But let's suppose you do an alcohol septal ablation, you cause the right bundle branch block, and then it doesn't work. The alcohol just didn't do enough to reduce the gradient. What happens is now when we do the surgery, there's a high incidence of left bundle branch block. So if, if you've induced the right bundle with the alcohol and you give them, do the surgery and you get a left bundle, again, you're going to need a permanent pacemaker. And then you got to decide, well, what risks are the patient at? Should we just put in a pacemaker or is this patient going to be a candidate down the line for a defibrillator? Because they've, and, and then what you got, you got to do, you got to look at the heart and see how much scarring is there. If there's a high amount of scar on an MRI scan, that's telling you, you might need at some point a defibrillator. So it becomes a little more complicated and you've got to consider all of these factors before you start out, you know. So let, let's take a dive a little bit off to the side here in terms of anatomy for alcohol ablation. So the heart can't be too thin and it can't be too thick. <laughs> And That's the gradient right. can't be too high right. because we know that we don't get enough gradient right. resolution with ultra high gradients. And if the walls are less than 17, 18, there's a chance you can burn through the wall. Well, yeah. If the we, heart's too thick, you're not going to burn enough. So, so you tend to be, when, when, when we make these measurements, it tends to be between about 18 and 22 to 25 millimeters, certainly no more than 20, 25 is pushing the limit. So it's got to be between sort of like that when you measure the septal thickness, 18 to 22, 23, maybe. And you, so you, you know, you to have the best chance. Now, in reality, if I have a otherwise healthy patient, that doesn't have any other medical conditions, is not very old, I might choose to be more invasive and do surgery and, 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 do, and reserve the alcohol for people that are older and have other conditions. And particularly if they have atrial fibrillation, then I'd be more inclined to go ahead with the surgery because I can do more to the left atrium in the operating room than you could with a with uh, when you're doing an alcohol septal ablation. So I, that you've got to look at all those factors. If Okay. So it's not for everybody, alcohol septal ablation. Right. We don't want to do it in the young because we're also adding scar burden. You're adding That's scar right. to the right. heart. Right. 
Um, and we've learned a lot. We started doing alcohol septal ablations in the United States in the late 90s. There 1996. Were a lot of, 1996. Yeah. yeah, 1996. Um, and it was a procedure that I like history. I like how we got to places. So Barry Marin wrote an article oh. about one of his patients who had a myocardial infarction in the first septal perforator area and had a naturally occurring alcohol ablation by having that part of the heart muscle die off. And he said, wow, look, this is what happened. And somebody said, we can do that on purpose. And that's where the procedure was kind of invented out of Germany and then came over here and kind of went around the country as the next great fix for HCM. Um, Probably a lot were done that maybe didn't need to be done. And some of them were done aggressively with a lot of alcohol early on. And I've seen a lot of those people come back years later with a lot of damage in the heart and we learn in time. So early adopters of anything, you know, thank you for being early adopters, but you tend to get more of the complications. Um, And we've learned a lot. We use less alcohol today. We're more precise in its delivery. Patient selection is better when done at a center where everybody can give their input on the clinical side, and then the patient can get all that information and choose what they want to do in terms of uh, radiant reduction. So it's complicated to pick out those patients. And you want an operator who's done a lot of alcohol ablations and has a good team around them, correct? Right. So that leaves us with the Mac Daddy therapy for outflow tract obstruction ingredient and what has long been called the gold standard, myectomy. Who is a candidate for a myectomy? Well, I think if uh, if, if they are severely symptomatic uh, and that shortness of breath, chest pain, and the other thing we've got to be aware of, anybody that's going to have an invasive procedure must have a coronary angiogram to start with because you got to know what the coronary arteries look like. About 20% of people who have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy also have coronary artery disease. So tell everybody what coronary artery disease is. It's narrowing of the coronary arteries, atherosclerosis. And you, if you have that, you've got to take care of that problem. Now there's a major issue here. We feel that if you have coexistent coronary artery disease of a significant degree, you know, greater than, you know, 60, 70% in an artery, uh, we feel that you should have bypass surgery at the same time. You don't, you don't want to have a stent put in, in, in a patient who has, has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that needs surgery for the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. You don't want to be putting in stents because that delays you doing the myectomy because you put that stent in there and you've got to wait at least six months before you can do the surgery. So, because you can damage that, that stent when you're in the operating room. So you want to, if they have coronary artery disease, then you need to do myectomy and bypass surgery and you will get a better result. So I want to pause on that one for a second. And I'm going to go a little off topic here. Um, I see a lot of things <laughs> and we see it coming from 
small programs, large programs, we, we get a view of the HCM world that's quite unique. Lots of people will go to the doctor and say, I'm having chest pain. And as you said, 20% of people with HCM have coexisting coronary artery disease. If you're told you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and your local doctor tells you, you have an area of your heart that I want to stent because I think that's the cause of your symptoms. I urge you to go to a high volume center and have your HCM fully evaluated before you start putting equipment inside because yes, you may have a small narrowing and yes, it might need to be stented, but if you think that's the root cause of your chest pain, you might be wrong. It may be related to HCM, not coronary artery disease, and then you'll end up with equipment inside of you, a stent, which may not be required. And as Dr. Lever just explained, might delay your surgery or other options that you might be looking at. So please go slowly. You've got one heart. Um, some of us get two, but most of you have one. It's going to take you through life. You want to make sure that what you're doing to it is appropriate. So we're right. not doing too much. Right. Okay. So patients who are obstructed, who have not been well-managed on medical therapy, who are definitely symptomatic. No, um, I would say that the medicine doesn't work. I wouldn't say it hasn't been well-managed. It's just- Well, yeah. Yeah. it's not effective for giving them the quality of life that they are right. seeking. Right. Um, Age is not really an issue. We have babies that have myectomy, but it's very, very rare. So young people, teens, 20s, they're candidates for myectomy if the gradient is over 50 millimeters of mercury and they are symptomatic and they're not responding to therapy. Um, what other qualifications does somebody have to have to have a myectomy? Gradient over 50, 50. age is open. Well, I I think the atrial fibrillation is a, is a, is becoming a, a very important. Mm -hmm. And uh, the other thing that you've got to worry about is, is there other valvular disease? Do they have aortic valve disease? That is aortic stenosis. Or is there something wrong with the mitral valve? We've had patients who have um, mitral valve problems where there may be a small tear in the mitral valve or they have calcification in what we call the mitral annulus. That's the ring around the mitral valve, and that can cause leaking of the mitral valve. So if you've got a leakage of the mitral valve uh, because of that or a tear in the valve, then that needs to be worked on. And the interesting thing that we have found at the clinic is about 20% of people uh, who get a myectomy need something done to the mitral valve. Now, there's some controversies about that. Some centers don't believe it's that high, but we've, I suspect because Lisa sends us so many patients that we we're, we're, we're maybe getting uh, a little, you know, we're seeing more mitral valve patients than other centers are. So we need to do that at the same time. So you got to be aware of, of uh, uh, that. The other thing is we have recently over the last few years found that if uh, you can have where the walls of the heart in, come in, come together and they hit in the middle, down, down part way down the septum, where the mitral valve itself it may not be involved, it's just the walls hitting. 
And we have found mid-cavity obstruction. Mid-cavitary obstruction. Mm-hmm. That that the surgeon can go in there and remove some of that muscle that's hitting together, and that will help relieve the pressure gradient. So that's also important to look at. Now there aren't that many patients that have that problem, but you got to look for it. You got to be aware of what you're what you're looking for. And you know, I think we need to also talk about how do we look at these things. We do echocardiograms on the surface of the chest. We can do transesophageal echoes if the pictures are not absolutely ideal with a probe down into the esophagus. And then we can do MRI scans, which can be very helpful at looking at the anatomy of the, of the walls. And then, of course, you need to do the coronary angiogram. But you, you have to do those diagnostic tests to see exactly what you got. I want to talk about two different forms of anatomy here. Um, and issues that can happen with the HCM heart. So Dr. Hartzell Shaft at the Mayo Clinic uh, pioneered a uh, process called an apical myectomy. Now I know Nick Smadira does his from the the traditional approach, but there are some who have been taught to cut through the apex of the heart, the bottom of the heart, and debulk the base of the heart in what's called an apical myectomy. It's, It's not as common, um, but it is another option. Um, there's not as much data in that set as there is in a traditional myectomy. We can go back to the 60s on that. But apicals, he's been doing probably for 15, 20 years in small numbers. Um, and he's trained some other individuals to do it as well, but it's not a common approach. But the piece that I want to talk about, because I feel like they are abandoned and nobody talks about them, papillary muscles. What are papillary muscles and why are they important in HCM? Papillary muscles are a part of the anatomy that it, it, one end is attached down towards the t- tip of the heart and bottom of the heart, bottom of the heart and then the, uh, the other then is attached to the mitral valve with what we call, they're little strings, they're called cordy tendinii, and they get attached to the leaflets of the mitral valve. So, so what we can have happen is you can have uh, those cords can be short. They can tear. They can. They you can have a situation where the papillary muscle is directly attached to the leaflet, and there are no strings in between. It's just a direct attachment of that papillary muscle right to the leaflet. And as a matter of fact, a few years ago, we had a very interesting patient who had only a 14 millimeter septum. He had prolapse of the mitral valve where the posterior leaflet was going backwards. And he had direct attachment of the anterior leaflet with the papillary muscle, no strings attached. So we had a we had to repair the mitral valve prolapse. We had to detach a portion of that papillary muscle to get rid of the gradient. And the interesting thing is we didn't either ever do a myectomy on the guy. All we did is work on the mitral valve. So that can happen. And so you the papillary it. muscles, just so people can get an imagery here, they look like little fingers, little tiny <laughs> fingers at the base of the heart. But sometimes we can have multiple heads on those fingers. We can have an extra papillary muscle. They can be pushing the valve into the wrong direction because right. of how they're situated. And right. there may need to be correction to the papillary muscle itself, either cinching it together or separating it or some other aspect of surgical intervention to that papillary muscle. Right, right, that's right. 
So okay. you've got to look at all of that stuff. That's why we need good imaging to see what, what the problems are. And you got to know all that before you get to the operating room. You don't want to find that in the operating room. You want to know when, before you put that patient to sleep, exactly what you're going to do. So some of the programs are developing, and I first heard about this probably about seven years ago, um, the advent of 3D printing is allowing some surgical centers to right. create 3D images of the heart before they go into surgery right. to help plan the surgery. And I will give props to Hero um, at Columbia. He was the first person to show me this. When you make these 3D images of the heart, you also see something else that's very hard to see on echo or MRI. And that is an actual band of hypertrophy that can run down the septum and around the heart. And if they can resection that band, right. those seem to be beautiful myectomies. So preparing for surgery, understanding the unique physiology of the HCM heart is absolutely critical to good outcomes. Right. And that being said, I think we have to be realistic and honest that even the best surgeons who do the most myectomies, once somebody's healed from myectomy, the heart starts beating differently, the muscles in a different way, and obstruction can reoccur in probably less than 5% of patients. Um, but nobody's perfect, um, but we typically see these happen, you know, five to seven years after surgery, the, the gradient may come back, but it's incredibly rare and typically can be managed with medication. Um, so Wendy's just asked us, can the area of removal during myectomy regrow? The very common question, does the heart muscle grow back? Usually not. The only time you worry about that happening, maybe and we don't see it very often, it's in very young people uh, before they go through puberty. And that's actually, that's when the heart, if it's going to increase in size, will increase as the patient grows. So if you're dealing with a relatively young individual, you might run into a situation, again, not very common, where you might have to repeat the myectomy because the heart has gotten thicker. It doesn't happen that often. But you you got to be aware and you got to follow the patients along. So the body continues to grow and generate until approximately your mid-20s. So if you have a myectomy as a teen, your body's still growing and it's possible for regrowth to happen. When you see obstruction reoccur in an adult, in my experience of 27 years working with this population, there's typically two things that are at play a low volume surgeon who did not do a proper myectomy right. the first time in resection right. enough, or right. as the heart healed, your heart doesn't beat up and down. It twists like you're wringing out a towel. Right. So your anatomy as it's healing might change a little bit. And over time, the way that your heart beats, you might recreate a gradient. Um, those are rare, rare cases. Very rare. You happen. And if it's going to happen, it would tend to happen in a younger individual. I, would I actually saw one. I mean, we don't see a lot of patients over time where we see things change. But I had one patient that I had seen more than 10 years ago now who, when I saw him, was gene positive, echo negative. I eventually saw him 10 years later. He was no longer echo negative. He was very thick muscle. And we ended up doing a myectomy on him. So we we don't. We see people at points in time. We don't usually have the 
luxury of seeing them over years and, and seeing this happen in a lot of people. But it obviously happens. We're just not seeing them because people, people get symptomatic when they get symptomatic when the heart muscle has thickened. So if we haven't seen it, you know, haven't gotten thick, they're not going to be symptomatic. So we won't be seeing them. And I get to follow patients and families throughout life. And I, I have some people that I've been working very closely with for over 20 years now. And you'll see things evolve over time. We're not just this static diagnosis. Right. Our bodies change, environmental change. Lots of things happen in our life. We get viruses and we get this and we get that. We don't know what triggers changes in our cardiac anatomy yet. We're not that smart, um, but we know things do change over time. Progression is possible for most people. Um, but I also know some people in the families that they've been screening since their forties or fifties, and now things are showing up in their seventies and they're dealing with it in their seventies. I do want to go back over uh, age for myectomy. Um, I often get people asking, well, I'm, I'm getting older. Am I too old to have a myectomy? The oldest myectomy I'm aware of was a 92-year-old woman. Um, what is the oldest that you know, Harry? I don't know. I, I don't know. Probably in the 80s, you know. It, 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 it depends upon how, how what other troubles they have. You know, you got to be careful taking somebody to the operating room if they're elderly because they can have renal disease or you know, lung disease or kidney disease, you know, you know, what, what, anything else, you know, I mean, the coexistent coronary artery disease tends not to worry us as much because we can deal with that when in the operating room most of the time. And you, you just, you know, you, um, you know, you got to look over the patient and see how they're doing. And, uh, you know, what is the one thing about patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? I've seen so many that sometimes they come in and say, Oh, I'm feeling fine. I don't have any troubles. And I put them on a treadmill and they can't go past three minutes. Then I have other people that say, I feel lousy. I can't do anything. We put them on the treadmill and they do pretty well. So you got to look at the, You got to look at what, before you take somebody in the operating room, you got to know everything about them. You know, the anatomy, that's, the exercise tolerance, the symptoms. And that's a great point. That's a, that's a really great point. And I have had people, um, be very aggressive about, I want a myectomy. That, that's what I want. That's what I think I need. And then they're disappointed six months later because it didn't address the symptom that they thought it would. Right. Can we address the symptoms that an alcohol or alcohol septal or myectomy, any, any intervention meant to treat obstruction, what symptoms are we really going after there? We're going after usually shortness of breath is the most common. And, uh, uh, and then chest pain, and then dizziness or lightheadedness. And the one that we worry a lot about is loss of consciousness, syncope. And you got to ask yourself, why did the patient pass out? Did they pass out because they had a heart rhythm disturbance? Or did they pass out because they may have gotten dehydrated and, and, and uh, the gradient suddenly went up or they were doing too much activity and they had a high gradient and to start with and the gradient took them out. So you've got to know, again, what's the mechanism of the loss of consciousness? 
do they do they lose it you know uh and so you 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 want to make sure that you really need that myectomy and the patient didn't have a, an episode of you, you know that you're not dealing with somebody who has no obstruction who is having runs of ventricular tachycardia and they suddenly went out with a bad rhythm that needs a defibrillator but if they have obstruction you know then you need to do a, a mechanical procedure to get rid of it and even some of those people that you operate on, depending on the thickness of the heart, the amount of scar, and what kind of rhythm you see in them, you may need to do the surgery and put a defibrillator. So you need to know all that stuff. So when we are talking to people who are newly diagnosed and they told us that they passed out, we dive into that question. Was there a halter monitor? Was there an event monitor? Did you see anything on that monitor? If they already have an implantable defibrillator, did it pick up anything? That'll tell you if it's an arrhythmic faint or a hemodynamic faint is the way I like to look at it. Your hemodynamics got screwed up and you lost consciousness because of it. So there, there are two different mechanisms for faint and it's really important to understand why you did what you did. Um, just because you faint and it's hemodynamic does not necessarily mean you need a myectomy. There could be, you know, you could have just gotten dehydrated and that's it. And you might be not obstructed. Now, there's one other thing we got to mention here. Okay. It's alcohol. Yeah, you like this topic. <laughs> you know, you don't want people with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy drinking a lot of alcohol because it can cause atrial fibrillation if you drink too much. And uh, I've seen a number of patients with that problem. And, uh, you know, it's... Uh, you don't want to do anything that will induce a heart rhythm disturbance. So tend to tell people to stay around, away from alcohol. The other thing that alcohol does is it can dilate the peripheral muscles if you drink too much. And that can then, when that dilates, that cavity gets smaller and they can get a higher gradient from the alcohol. So you got to be careful with it. You definitely need to be careful. Um, I'm going to speak to some real world experience here as somebody who was diagnosed at 12 years old with HCM and has lived a life with it and has possibly drank some alcohol on occasion. Um, for many years, I didn't drink because I didn't like the way it made me feel. Um, but I found that if I wanted to have a social drink, if I drank a nice big glass of water beforehand, had my splurge drink, and then had another glass of water afterwards, that I kind of balanced out how I felt. And then my stomach was so full with liquid, I didn't want any more alcohol anyway. So I saved myself the calories and the negative consequences, but I could still be social. So it's finding that balance. Um, and if you don't want to drink, don't drink. But if you want to have that social drink, please make sure you're really hydrated. Um, this system has worked very well for a lot of people, but... I don't want to be the, no, 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 you can't. Let's figure out the ways you can have a little bit of both. You, gotta, you also have to know that a bottle of beer is a shot and a half of whiskey. And, 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 uh, and you got to be careful how much wine, you know, a certain amount of wine will be equivalent to hard alcohol. So you got you to you gotta watch what you're, what you're doing. You definitely need to be cautious. I'm going to take a sip of water now. <laughs> Although there's been no alcohol today, but I don't have HCM anymore. Okay, we have some questions coming in um, and I'm gonna address some of them. One is not specifically related to obstruction, but I figure we'll ask, what is a left anterior vascular block? Fascicular, that's a portion 
the, the, the left the, the left bundle has two fascicles and has two branches. And so that's the anterior, there's an anterior and posterior. And uh, that, you know, that's what it is. So it's an electrical, minor electrical, electrical It's an electrical, think of, like, think of it as an electrical wire that's in the heart. Okay. And it's, it's slightly abnormal, right. um, which, why would that happen in HCM? Little scarring in there? Scarring, scarring. Yeah. So there we go. Okay. Um, can septal myectomy be performed with midventricular obstruction? And do symptoms play any role in the decision-making process? I think we've kind of gone yeah, over that. Right, yeah, right. You, so you, yes, you're very do. symptomatic and you've got mid-cavitary obstruction, then you should have a, probably a septal myectomy. Okay. Is oh okay. Is there a point where septal thickness is so severe that surgery is recommended, even though symptoms don't seem so severe? So, would you do surgery on somebody just for mass hypertrophy? Well, I think you know. I think you'd have to see how they do on a stress test. You know, what's there that comes down to? Well, the patient may not think they're symptomatic, but they may be more symptomatic than they realize. So a, a, a stress echocardiogram becomes very important there. It's rare that people are really thick and have no symptoms at all. And, you know, the other thing you've got to be careful about is uh, some people are told they have asthma and are given inhalers when indeed what they have is hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So you've got to be aware of, Oh, and that chest pain you're having, that's coronary artery disease. Well, you got to look and see if they have coronary artery disease or it's the pain that can be associated with the obstruction in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Absolutely. Um, so going back to John's question about severe hypertrophy, um, so we know that as a risk factor for sudden death, measurements that approach 3.0, so it's really like 2.8 to 3.0 or greater, that is considered a high-risk phenotype for cardiac arrest, but we're not going to make a decision on surgery based on septal wall thickness or maximal wall thickness anywhere in the ventricle. So you just want to make sure that you're with a team that understands HCM deeply so that they can make sure that they're not operating just to operate. You would hate to go through open-heart surgery, thoracotomy, and recovery to not have any benefit afterwards. That's, and I, I've seen it happen. And I say it typically in low volume centers where somebody just sees HCM and they're like, oh, let's operate. And there was no real need. And then they end up having to go back. So we have the, um, the fan club here, Harry. Um, people are sending you lots of love. They miss you. And they're telling us all kinds of wonderful stories about um, when you were uh, in full-time practice and they're, um, they're just sending you lots of love. Um, is tachycardia normal in HCM? So they want to talk about tachycardia and non-sustained ventricular tachycardia. You can have you can have what we call sinus tachycardia. You can have supraventricular tachycardia where the rhythm comes from the upper chambers of the heart, or you can have ventricular tachycardia where it generated down in the ventricles. And uh, sinus tachycardia is relatively easily treated with beta blockers. You know, it's uh, supraventricular tachycardia. Uh, you gotta, you gotta see what's going on. Sometimes there are some uh, pathways that uh, incite that rhythm, and you can go in there and put a catheter and stop it. 
again, atrial fibrillation is a bad problem. We don't we, we want to act on it quickly. And of course, if you have ventricular tachycardia, uh, that that uh, that that can kill people. So you got to know how fast it is and how often it occurs and and how long the episodes are and it probably needs a defibrillator. Now there are two kinds of defib there are different kinds of defibrillators now. Uh, the, there's one where we have usually we use two wires, one in the right atrium and one in the right ventricle. Um, and now we've come up with a newer kind where there's a battery is put in, lays on the chest, and then the wire comes out and it's laying on the heart. It doesn't have to be inserted into the heart, you know, and that, that's a new type, but it has one advantage is we don't tend to have as many wires wearing out and breaking because when you have it in the heart and the heart can moves and move with a lot of motion, sometimes we've got to replace the wire because you get a crack in it. And that's a deal to have to remove a wire. But there are people that know how to do that. But you got to. So if you put it in a very young person and over the years, they may need more than one set of wires. So that that becomes a problem. So you got to know. it. But the one problem with these new devices is the batteries at this point are rather large. And sometimes it depends on the size of the person that you're dealing with. If it's a small person putting in a big battery, that's not going to work. Yeah, it gets a little uncomfortable. And for women, um, you if you're going to consider an SICD, find the bra style that works best for you, wear it, show them where it is. A lot of women have had the, um, because it's on the side of the chest, the bra runs into it. And there's been some, some actually pretty significant um, abrasions from the right. bra oh, right over the device. So you want to make sure that you've given that some con consideration. Um, so Shari, I, I'm going to address your question here. Um, so welcome to the club. You didn't want to join. You're recently diagnosed. Um, you were riding horses five days a week and want that to be a part of your life going forward. So I am an equestrian mom. Um, my daughter started riding at the age of eight. We knew she was gene positive at seven and she showed phenotypic HCM at 10. She went on to have a very successful writing career and is now a coach uh, as well as a therapist and going to be teaching and working in equine therapy going forward. So you can do it. If you're having syncopal episodes, you may need to get that in check before you get back up on a horse, especially if you're doing any jumping or cross country, et cetera. But you can have an active equestrian life with HCM. I am witness to it. And if my kid didn't go to the barn, I'd probably have a much bigger house or a nicer car. Um, but I certainly don't regret any moment of our barn time together. Um, Lisa's asking a follow-up question. What if sinus tachycardia is not completely treated with a beta blocker due to low blood pressure? What else can you use to treat sinus tach? Well, you've got to see why the blood pressure is low. Is there anemia or something else going on? And you, you always... When you have a sinus tachycardia, you want to make sure that there's not other problems like hyperthyroidism. If your thyroid is overactive, it's going to fire up the heart. So you've got to you got to you got to look for other reasons. People just don't usually have sinus tachycardia. It's usually a sign of something else. It's something you got to look for, particularly if the beta blockers aren't working. Okay. 
Well, Harry, that brings us to an hour of chatting together on Tales from the Heart. And as always, it is absolutely lovely to have you join us. Um, I do have another announcement if everybody who's watching on Facebook, and for those of you who are just podcast listeners, you can't see the visual, but we'll be able to put this up on the website soon. You're going to start seeing something behind me while I'm doing the podcast. And these are original pieces of art hanging on the HCMA wall. They all have a heart image in them. They're all done with um, poured acrylics. And yours truly is the artist. We are going to be putting them up for auction soon. And they will be different colors and different designs. And they are all original. And I can never recreate them twice because they're poured acrylics. And they are very, very variable. Um, I look forward to seeing who gets to win the auctions and put them in their house. And we'll see them there. Um, and all proceeds will go to the HCMA and a portion of all proceeds will go towards the Lori Fund for those micro travel grants I spoke of earlier. So again, October 22nd is Unmasked the Great Masquerader Ball. And we hope if you are in the New Jersey area, you come out and join us for a fun evening. And you can get that information at 4hcm.org for registration. And a big shout out to our new podcast editor, Jeremiah Green who uh, started with us, uh, I think he'll be doing the last one and this one going forward. So some new people on the HCM team. Um, thanks to Sean Kenise, who was our podcast editor for two years, but has gone off into other endeavors at this point. So thanks, Sean. We'll see you in another life, possibly. And welcome, Jeremiah. So Dr. Lever, thank you so much for your time today. And it's really great to see that, you know, Doc is so attentive sitting there in the chair as right. always, and uh, we love seeing you and him, and we'll see you in two months. Okay. Thank you all for joining us, and have a wonderful weekend, and stay safe.